before we get started, I'm collecting listener testimonies for a new section on the website. If you love Web3 Galaxy Brain, please send me a tweet-length message saying why you listen and what makes the show special for you. DM me your testimony at Nicholas with four leading ends on Twitter or Telegram or at Nicholas on Warpcast. Thank you. Welcome to Web3 Galaxy Brain. My name is Nicholas. Each week, I sit down with some of the brightest people building Web3 to talk about what they're working on right now. My guest today is artist Rhea Myers. Rhea is a programmer, essayist, researcher, thinker, and art practitioner who's been working in the medium of blockchain for over a decade. In this conversation, Rhea takes us through some of the works and writing in her 2011 to 2021 retrospective, Proof of Work, which is a gorgeous book in the print edition. I've been wanting to interview Rhea for some time. It was exciting to sit down with her for this sprawling and deep conversation about art, technology, culture, politics, and everything in between. I hope you enjoy the show. As always, this show is provided as entertainment and does not constitute legal, financial, or tax advice or any form of endorsement or suggestion. Crypto has risks and you alone are responsible for doing your research and making your own decisions. Hey Ria, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to have you here. I always identify you with the Vancouver scene. Yes, yes. And, and that's, that's very much, um, that's very much where, where I, I'm from um, cryptographically, yes. Is that also where you're from artistically? A bit. Like I was in the UK for sort of all of my life prior to Vancouver. So that's several decades. And like Vancouver thinks of itself still as this very sleepy logging town on uh, that's about to fall into the Pacific, <laughs> but it's actually been integrated into the global telecommunications network since the 60s at the latest. So there's like this group, there were groups here like ME Thing Corporation who were sort of uh, very early network artists when that meant using a teletype and all sorts of you know, uh, public access video art and uh, satellite video link-up art when that was fairly literal rocket science. It's like uh, we're quite used to, to Zoom calling someone around the other side of the planet now, but the infrastructure to set that up in the early 1970s was beyond the means of most people, but yeah, Vancouver dialed in to, to some of that. But no, I mean, my, my heart is sort of in sort of English and French and American art history, possibly transatlantic art history, hence the accent, but yeah. Tell me about your college uh, experience, because you went to art college, right? I did, yes. So I went to art school in England at the end of the post-war settlement, by which I mean I was lucky slash privileged enough that the state would basically pay for me to go to art school. So whenever people ask me for advice about, hey, should I go to art school, how can I, I would be like, well, um, you can't do what I did because none of us voted hard enough to keep it. So I'm very sorry about that. But yeah, I did my art uh, foundation year at Kingston Polytechnic and graduated from Kingston University, which was nice when they changed over. I did my BA 
uh, in graphic fine arts at Canterbury College of Art, which at the time was part of the grandly named Kent Institute of Art and Design, and is now part of the, I think it's the Southeast Arts University, or so I can't remember what it is. It, these colleges keep on eating each other. And then I did my MA, which was in digital art, but it was called Computing and Design, because if you said design in the name of your course, you got more money than if you said art. Uh, yeah, at Middlesex University in North London, which was um, one of the inheritors of uh, Hornsey Art School, which had a sort of you know radical student occupation in the late 60s. And the course I was on had been running since the 70s in one form or another. So you had a real sense of history there, despite playing with uh, very new Macintosh computers at the time and um, having access to, to sort of Unix workstations and other things that were fairly mind-blowing in 1995, but are now very useful paperweights. So, yeah, I, I had sort of... I, I went to art school knowing I wanted to play with technology and sort of I was lucky enough to be able to steal access to it all the way through, but it wasn't until Middlesex that I got the conceptual framework for that, which was amazing, having access to, you know, to the history and, and to the current state of what I guess then was cyber culture. For people who weren't there or aren't so familiar with that yes. subcultural art scene, maybe can you give us a sense of what the vibe was like or what people were thinking about or what they weren't thinking yeah. about? Yeah, yeah, totally. So... um as history settles down, that's probably viewed as the early net art era. Um, I knew that net art was going on and simply didn't understand it. Um, it was the era of CD-ROMs. You could make art CD-ROMs, and that was interesting, sort okay. of having interactive narrative and, and, and art. Yeah, And you had interactive multimedia, either on the screen or projected. So like very, very expensive to, to rent, let alone buy video projectors. And you could sort of use an early little um, webcam type camera to, to see what people were doing and respond to that. And yeah, it was, it was the era where people hadn't quite worked out what the internet was for. The UK was very behind North America in, on, in internet terms. Like, I, I didn't get access to the net until, uh, until my MA. So, like, roughly s same computers, but no internet for a yeah. period of time. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, um, like, we hadn't settled down into everything is basically Unix apart from Windows, which is VMS. You had sort of people clinging on to the old 16-bit computers like the Amiga and stuff. You had people using the Macintosh, which was its own little world, and everyone expected Apple to go bust at any moment. And... Um, that's yeah, interesting. Sorry, that, just, that's kind of omitted yeah. from the the recollection, or at least the one I've inherited. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, sorry. Yeah, it, it, I, I, was it was uh, Macintosh, or I mean that you identified with that somehow in in the graphic work that you were doing, the vector art. In that yes, period? yes, yeah. I mean that there was um, like I'm I'm always a horrible reactionary slash snob slash late adopter 
in my use of technology and the Macintosh were just like at, at the turn of the 90s, the Macintosh could do, could do graphics and the PC simply couldn't. Like it wasn't until Windows 95 that you weren't basically joking if you were trying to do graphics on, on, on Windows. Um, there were very advanced and lovely packages like 3D Studio on, on DOS, but Windows was like just horrible. Um, and so, yeah, the Mac gave you access to, to graphics. And so people, uh, Adobe, how do I phrase this? Um, despite the lawsuit by Quantel, um, Adobe successfully launched Photoshop, so you could do the I kind don't know about of Quantel at all. What what was that? Oh, okay. So Quantel was an English company from the nineteen seventies who made a lovely device called the Quantel Paint Box. And if you imagine, Paint Box is a great name. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? And at the end of the at the end of the seventies, they commercialized something that allowed you to edit a frame of video at a time in full color which, um, given that things were based on valves 20 years before that, was, you know, was, was absolutely incredible. And yes, time went on in the, the 80s, it became more and more powerful. And if you look at sort of MTV style guide compliance television, then any colors drawn on, any rotating logos and things that weren't made with a Lisp machine were probably done on a, on a Quantel paint box or a Quantel Harry. And of course, they patented the algorithms and stuff that they used. And Adobe were making some image editing software of their own. So Quantel got a bit grumpy about that. But uh, Adobe were a big American corporation and that counts for a lot. So yeah, they made um, Illustrator, Aldous made Freehand, Ad Adobe made Illustrator. So just this sort of ability to take things that you previously had to use dark rooms full of chemicals and glue and and sort of different size scalpel blades and and sort of metal or plastic sheets of different curves that you could draw around with an ink pen. All of a sudden, you could do something like it on a screen. And that absolutely divorces you from the materiality of the medium, but it also frees you from the constraints of the materiality of, of the medium. And so you get this explosion in, in graphic design imagery at the last couple of years of the 80s and, and throughout the 90s of designers who could just frankly fuck shit up using a Macintosh and then get it printed in a, in, in a ray gun magazine or, or whatever. And because I was young at the time, um, I soaked this all up through popular culture, through zine culture, through magazine culture, and through music culture. Like uh, the best bands had their own graphic design team relationship. So sounds like also at, so the, at the same time it was a transition from hardware. Like this Quantel example is a hardware device yes, yes. to software. Very much so. Yes, yeah. In, in in various ways, like you. So you you could edit typography and graphics and 3D models and stuff using very expensive, very custom hardware for a decade or two prior to that. But yeah, it, it being commodified and consumerized so that not just the media you were working on, but the tools you were working with were also software was very new. And this is where free software, open source software 
becomes interesting because you can edit your tools. If you, if you know how to program, you can edit your tools as easily as you can edit the, 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 the material that you are using those tools on. And that's just really, you know, it, it, it renders everything tractable to, to manipulation as, as materials basically within the same medium. Everything becomes code and everything can be modified as code. And so if you can mess around with the code, then you are in a unique position to be able to, to engage with cultural materials at that level. There's always the economics of it, there's always the sociology and politics of it, but at the, the level of sitting down somewhere and going, okay, I'm going to work with this, then that really opened everything back up, certainly. I've been reading your book, Proof of Work, which covers... Yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, it's it's excellent and uh, yes. fa- fascinating, uh, really on every page. Um, so it covers uh, your work from 2011 to 2021. And yes, yes. speaking of free software, one of the themes that comes up is free art. And yes. it's an important theme in your work. Do you think it's important that artists be allowed to use whatever source material they want? Or does the advent of software somehow yes. change the equation <laughs> on this? Yeah, they should. Um, so I, I came to this organically when I was at art school on my art foundation course that I mentioned. I was given the task of, you know, as a college project, of combining two different artworks. And one of them was a Jackson Pollock splatter painting. And, and you'd look at it and you could go, okay, yeah, I can splash paint around with that particular level of intensity. That's great. And the other was very abstract early 20th century painting art that was originally a cyclist, a bicycle rider by an Italian futurist artist. And I looked at it and I was like, I can't even see the cyclist in this. How can I competently marry the, these two works together? And I went down to the, the library and had a look, and I had a book of sketches by this artist, including the preparatory sketches, the, the drawings that they've done to prepare for the painting for that particular work. And the first one was like an early 1900s, person uh, on a bicycle, then it was them and some lines, then them and some triangles, and then it all dissolved. And access to that knowledge gave me the ability to do that task. And then a few years later, I went to the Tate or somewhere in, in London, in England, and they had a sign-up saying no photography. And I was like, this, this is a public collection. Like, my taxes pay for this. And these artists have been dead for hundreds of years in many cases. Like, they don't have any copyright or more rights to assert against me. Why are you trying to and and photos this have stuff? been taken before? Yeah, 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 yeah. Many of them by Dorian Kintersley, and and this reminded me of my my interest in the early nineties in sample based music and, and art and the way that sort of sample based music, particularly rap music, became much less popular throughout the nineties in response to some lawsuits in the states. And that artists I liked, like Jeff Kuhn, seem to keep on losing lawsuits. And I do, yeah, I do think artists should have freedom of depiction. I do think that artists should be able to to represent whatever they need to slash like. That that doesn't like you. You can't drop a nuclear device on a city and go, it's art in it. It's like that. No, that that there is a moral 
limit to um, artistic freedom where it, where you know you, you do something with actual moral impact and try and claim it's art. Killing animals is always a popular one for that. But yeah, in terms of depiction, yeah, artists should get to do what they wish. However, copyrights on, on certainly on unique artworks um, is a bit of a category error. So there should be a revolving door for art where you can take anything into art and people can take anything out of art. And this greatly upsets people who, with the best one in the world, are actually illustrators because they're like, but I, I make my money by selling copyright to corporations. It's like, you, you, you don't, but I know that's how it feels. So, yeah, it's a very difficult one to, you know, to try and sell to anyone who isn't me. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I do, I do, I do think that there are, mu- there are much more important things to talk about, but if we're in the realm of art, then, oh, you can't depict that for reason X, Y, or Z. It's not a good start, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely not a good start. Uh, you can imagine cases where things shouldn't be depicted or done as a form of depiction, but oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly, certainly yeah. at the limit, uh, far, far yes. away from where we are with copyright and how much yes, how much things are limited. Totally, yeah. And and like, to be extremely, extremely clear, sort of, I'm, I'm not saying you should be able to do anything awful and excuse it as art. Uh, I'm saying it is only really where you are doing something awful that isn't art that the the quotes freedom of depiction and quotes or freedom of art should should finish. Uh, I'm sure we can all think of categories of images that it is in fact a reasonable restraint on on other people's freedom to to not circulate, um, given the harm they do. Yeah, um, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Is Satoshi the greatest uh, artist of all time? <laughs> kind of. There's, there's, um, like it's it's them or the CIA. So, so with 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 Satoshi, there's, um, I've 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 been actually reading more Duchamp recently because, like, as an artist, uh, the big secret is you don't actually have to know what you're talking about. You just have to look like you know. But I've been going a lot more into Duchamp's writings and interviews again recently. And uh, one of his concepts is, is the art coefficient, which is the, the uh, gap between the amount of effort you put into an artwork and the amount of effect leverage. that you get out. Leverage, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> aesthetic, art, free a, art on aesthetic leverage. Le- aesthetic leverage is like also... Put it, yeah. So um, this is what I they should think, be teaching in the schools, of course. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I suppose they do. Yeah, it varies, but yeah. In, in, so in terms of aesthetic leverage, Satoshi certainly had this wonderful effect, and I think Bitcoin did get the, the did we get the golden Nika Mice Nika? How do you pronounce it? At, at Ars Electronica a few years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, but the the thing that makes Bitcoin not an artwork is um, like the the um, and, and this is one of the examples where the title of the book is um, fairly arbitrary is the the uh, the Baron Munchausen story in the book. Yes, do you want uh, to tell which, it? Which which pivots? Um, can you remind me of the page? So it's from twenty, and this is me trying to feel so I hit the page and my am failing this. Oh, here we go. This is from, so this is from two thousand and eight. An excerpt from a recounting of an adventure by Baron Munchausen. 
And so, said the Baron, the ringing of my diving bell allowed me to lift from the ocean floor the heaviest pearl ever discovered. I later had it made into a brooch by the finest craftsman in the land. But Baron, interjected the host, surely such a weighty trinket could never actually be worn. It would be worthless. The Baron paused, but for a moment. My dear sir, as you know, the defining characteristic of art is its inner utility. The value of art therefore stands in direct and inverse proportion to its utility. Given that a pearl brooch of unwearable weight must be entirely useless, its artistic value must therefore be infinite. And and that is the yeah, that's that's aesthetic leverage, the, the art coefficient. But it, it's um, I mean, Bitcoin is too useful to be art. Do you think Bitcoin is too useful to be art? Yes, and and sort of all the people who Depends get who upset. Asks. Well. <laughs> They'll be proved wrong. Sort of de- 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 declaring something useless is sadly not enough to render it useless. <laughs> uh, use- useless, rather, and yeah, sort of proof of proof of work. Um, however upset communists get about the, the the name is doing something. It is securing the Bitcoin blockchain, and whether you think that's valuable or not, it is is not even a predictor, it's a determinant of whether you think that the energy is wasted or not. If you believe that a single Satoshi of social value has ever been produced by the Bitcoin blockchain, then proof of work is is, uh, not a complete waste. It it is something with a function. Um, If you think otherwise, then no amount of apologetics will excuse that energy being used for something with, with no social value. But it is simply not credible to state that, that Bitcoin has had no social value. You know, you, you, you cannot make that argument. So what people do is they fall back to, oh, couldn't you have done this another way? Um, to which certainly for, for NFTs, for, for Ethereum, my response is, if we could have done this another way, someone would have got rich doing it by now. <laughs> you know, there's always this, oh, can't you do this another way? No, I can't. I know you don't want this to be the case, but you, you being mad at me for this is not going to change. And then they just yell at you about something else. And, and yeah. But anyway, so, um, yeah, it's an, it's an amazing, it's sort of, it's more like an aqueduct or, or a coliseum. It's, you know, it's more, it's more profoundly beautiful architecture. Writing? Um, Typesetting? Um, no, no, because it, it, it sort of has a form, it has an immediate form in the world. So, like, if you, if you imagine, like, a subway system or uh, a system of pneumatic tubes, then, you know, Bitcoin's more like that. It's, it's a system of tubes. Yeah, sort of any, any, any large-scale social structure that directs human activities like a freeway or, a, a, you know, a cityscape. Bitcoin's more like that, but just with the, the multiplying power of code. Talking of systems like this and thinking about them relative to fiat, do you think that any totalizing system that destroys all competition necessarily brings about the invention of its antithesis? Um, so we're, we're into the realms of, of dialectics here. And I, I think that sort of it, 
it it can it can do. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, it was sort of if is is antimatter the antithesis of matter? Like, is is an antimatter explosion a, a historically relevant synthesis in the in a Hegelian sense? I don't know. I mean, I sort of as as. Um, as Bitcoin's critics point out, it, it's still money. It's like it's it's mm-hmm. you know people people call it sound money, which is weird because you don't sonify it all that often. But yeah, people call it sound money, and I don't know. Yeah, sorry, I'm av- I'm avoiding the question. <laughs> um, cer- certainly, any 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 sufficiently complex um, formal system, a la Gödel's proof, will contain statements that cannot be proven within it um any sufficiently large blob of value will have surplus value and and money as a code and, and code is very good for for decoding in the delusian sense or, or sort of you know hacking finding exploits in in the hacker trans- sense translating so, living across translating communities. yeah 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 I, I find this is like totally. such an underappreciated aspect of fungibles that they, especially yes. dominant fungibles, that they really don't require that you share religion or worldview no. as long as it, you have enough to share this one worldview. You really don't yes, know much else. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a tricky one because um, I'm, I'm in Canada and there's a, an attempt to copy various MAGA antics from down south uh, in the form of um, the, quotes freedom convoy. Uh, which was claimed to represent good, honest, working-class truckers, but seemed to consist mostly of people with oversized pickups and no access to their grandchildren. But um, they had their funding cut off um, through the banks and stuff. Yes. And so people started sending them Bitcoin, which is which is possible to do. And the, the federal government, I think, intervened um, at the exchange level within... Their, their boundaries, which is within certainly the power of the state to do. And so as as someone who the average, quotes, freedom convoy, in quotes, person, would very happily feed into a wood chipper, I, I am conflicted that this thing that I definitely support is used to, to oppose the, the non-monetary aspects of my existence. But... As people do point out, anything that could be used to interfere with that could be used to interfere with my own, uh, you know, my own activities. And so, the, the the difficult thing to do to do in politics in this in this sense is to move upstream and say, yeah, you know, if 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 I'm trying to cut their supply line off, then we've you know we're already too late. I should probably move upstream and tackle it some other way. But yes, certainly the, the ability to to transact between groups is the promise of uh, liberal democracy. Um, obviously, people do have different um, laws around money, um, like and religion does come into it. The the the, the Mormons, the, the LDS in the states, have a massive impact on credit transmission. Hmm. Laws. Uh, they're the reason why, if you're a sex worker, then uh, you have great difficulty accessing payment for your legal services. Islam has its own rules uh, for finance that 
Uh, and I apologize to any uh, Muslim scholars if I'm screwing this up. I'm honestly doing my best. I have rules around charging interest that basically say, no, you can't do that. And you have to structure Islamic law compliance financial products to avoid falling foul of that because you don't, you know, like money's nice, but you don't want to uh, endanger someone's immortal soul. So, yeah, I mean, even something as apparently simple as money um, has, you know, fundamental political and religious and I'm sure other um, aspects to it that, that you can absolutely build on top of of something like Bitcoin. And I don't think there is any problem in any of those regimes um, per se with, with Bitcoin. But it's it's sort of, yeah, you know, as, as someone who is very much um, a boring, old-fashioned liberal democracy fan, open society, yay. Yeah, I, I, I am a fan of cryptocurrency for the, oh yeah, no, you know, you don't care about anyone else's politics. Um, you just pay for your bread with this. Was the world's first Bitcoin artist in 2011 <laughs> your first blockchain artwork? I mean, it doesn't go anywhere near the blockchain, so I think so. I think I tried to craft some transactions around the same time and hadn't quite worked out how change addresses hmm. work. So if we assume that the naught point the 0.1 Bitcoin that I had, it should now be what, about 3,000 Canadian dollars. That would all have gone to minor fees. And um, this is a surprisingly common introduction <laughs> to is the it? power and, and danger of the, of the blockchain. But yes, that was certainly my first public engagement with it and someone did email me and say hey yeah let's let's do this how do i send you a bitcoin and, and i didn't get back to them because i was worried that it wouldn't pay for the postage by the time i did it so the the piece wasn't on chain it wasn't uh no 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 how was it presented sadly, sadly not it wasn't it doesn't it sort of it was literally just this blog post and and this this is one of the problems my we you know most of my pre-NFT work is that it exists in, in blog posts or, or articles on websites or on chains that don't run anymore or that's difficult to access. So like for all the promise of, of permanent uh, public records, which I think is, um, is actually misplaced, but we don't have to go into that. Yeah, a sort of a lot of my early blockchain stuff was very ephemeral. Mm-hmm. And it was only really with the launch of um, the live Ethereum mainnet in 2015 that I had a chance to make things that might last a bit longer. Uh, for people who are curious, the world's first Bitcoin artist is, uh, you say, I'm now accepting commissions for drawings yes. of Bitcoin paid for with Bitcoins. And there's a, a little bit of rest of a post there, but basically yeah, an so announcement. Yes, yeah, so send, send me a Bitcoin and I'll send you a Bitcoin as a drawing. Uh, if anyone wants to send me a Bitcoin, I'll gladly send you a drawing of a Bitcoin. Uh, I'm not worried about it covering the postage now, but um, yeah. You never know, that might be, that might be something people will take you up on. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, that'd be nice. That will help me come tax season, no doubt. <laughs> yes. Um, I think I most identify you with the MySoul project that's oh, the yes. one that stuck yeah, out of my mind that one. yes and yeah we, would you like to read the pieces description oh. on page 261 
Thank you. You're a lifesaver. Yes, I, I would. Where are we? Two, four, five, six, one. Okay, so, oh, yes, this one. So, uh, this is from 2014. I've placed my soul on the blockchain, representing it as a cryptographic asset token. The MySoul token is on the Dogecoin blockchain. It's a Doge party asset. I've divided it half into 100 units. This is more efficient than having a single token to represent the soul and transferring it to a single owner, as competition within the market will both reduce costs and allocate this resource more efficiently than the monopoly could. To make ownership of my soul more accessible, I've also created this was updated couple of months after. I've also created a MySoul asset on the Bitcoin blockchain with Counterparty. This is also divided up into 100 units. Counterparty is more expensive for transactions than Doge Party, but it's more widespread, so it's good to have both options. Note my wife will not allow me to sell any of the tokens, as she asserts quite reasonably, that my soul belongs to her, if anyone. Beautiful. So, yeah, and that comes from... Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a terribly, terribly, terribly late postmodern artist. So the, the sort of ownership of the soul as an artistic move comes from the Soviet expat artists, um, Komar and Melamid, who were active in the New York art scene in the 70s to 90s. And they did various wonderful artworks, which inspired other ones. But in this particular case, they set up a company to buy artists' souls sell shares in them and return value on that. And they got the souls of various artists um, who signed contracts, including Andy Warhol and others. And this, I just sort of found that lovely because uh, their work is all very ironic about um, a public opinion and free markets, shaping of, of values and stuff. And I, I sort of love using the phrase economic efficiency uh, basically to troll people, and, and this was a nice way of working that in. So, yeah, the idea would be, my, you know, the shares in my soul would be released onto the market. Different churches, different sects, different religions would you know, bid on them and pay me, so I get some benefit during my, my material life. And then when I die, uh, the best possible religion will have paid the best possible price for my soul. And I will go to Stovacore or Heaven or, or wherever, and everyone will be happy. The market works. But, um, yeah, my my wife is, is slightly more serious about souls than I am. So In the way, that, that's, marking your own career. Well, to, be, to be honest, probably saving me from making a horrific mistake. But, um, yes, you really do not want to subject yourself directly to the market in an unironic move. An eternity on the blockchain. Sounds sounds like a long time. Yes, yeah. I mean, eventually the heat death of the universe will leave no more energy to, to mint new blocks with and, and then all the electrons will decay and there'll be nothing left to encode information. But I might get bored of rereading my comics collection sometime before then. I don't know. Do you ever get tired of uh, computers and blockchain? No, um, I'm, I'm a project-based artist, always have been. And if you look carefully at the dates in the book, you'll notice that I sort of gain and lose interest in, in blockchain stuff. And I do sort of bursts of activity in 2014, 17, 20, and 
23. And uh, oh, that's not in the book, obviously, but get the idea. And um, yeah, ordinarily, I would have moved on to a, to a new technology some time ago, but um, the blockchain stuff just continues to be so fascinating and such a good lever or lever for continuing social anxiety, like the current fear and hatred of, of, of AI learning models, which um, sort of comes from people who would not be able to work as artists or authors without software that operationalizes the skills of many other people and was perfectly happy with that. But when it happens to them, so, you know, it's suddenly very, very wrong. You know, if I was engaged with, with AI, then I'd be having a field day. I know some very good artists who've been working with AI forever, like Shardcore in the UK, Metz Breeze in Australia, um, Sasha um, Technology in the States, and, and other people who I apologize for forgetting, but I hadn't paid my AI money back in for this talk. So, like, you know, I could do a lot of work with that, but it's still the same issues. It's still knowing which came first and what belongs to who. And there's a much purer imaginary to, to work with for that with blockchain technology. A lot of people in technology are optimistic and motivated to change the world for the better through their work. I'm not sure if the same holds for many artists, maybe so. But do, <laughs> do you feel a personal obligation to ethically improve the world through your art? No, absolutely not. <laughs> So if you, so bear in mind, I've had a career as a, a software developer, mm. and I've and sort of I've been involved in startups at least once a decade for the last three decades. And if if you have seen the American comedy program, I think on HBO called Silicon Valley, it's a documentary. I've I've been in the room. I've been in the room for those conversations and the sort of ethic of sharing, uh, sorry, the aesthetic of sharing with an ethic of enclosure is very much the, the Californian ideology from a wonderful essay by the late Andy Cameron and uh, Dr. Richard Barbrook, who is um, also awesome, uh, which talks precisely about the, the gap between the, hey, yeah, let's make everything free and share it online with the, and I'm going to get rich doing this with my venture capital backing friends. And, and th there's nothing, how do I phrase this? There's nothing new or particularly wrong with that. We all deal with our contradictions under capital in our own way, but it, it is, uh, one, one, you know, once seen, you cannot unsee it. It's just, you know, every single new technology is going to make the world a better place, is going to empower and free everyone, and we're going to share stuff and love each other, and how will you be paying for that? So there's, there's that aspect of things. Artists, it, it's, so I'm interested in the sort of tradition, uh, the, the critical tradition of art, which is a very 20th century modernist, grumpy Marxist, tradition, but as uh, Maya pointed out, possibly in an interview or possibly in the conversation we've had, critical theorists always think that they've got some underlying necessary truth that they are revealing, whereas I think things are a bit more chaotic than that. 
and I, I, you, you will sort of there was there was an odd saying which was no one ever got fired for buying IBM, which in, in corporate circles meant you know if you do the most obvious thing, then mm-hmm. you know you, you'll be fine. And and with um, with critique with critical theory, the most obvious thing is to say that something is is evil. Uh, the absolutely trivial move is to say it's fascism. Uh, which trivializes actual fascism. And so, you know, to simply say, hey, here's the latest technology and why it's hot terrible just doesn't interest me as, as, a, as a reflex in myself or others. And it's much, it's so the, the arts I make um, sort of, I, it, I tend to have some, some skin in the game to use that, that now strangely outdated term. I'm, I am performing, making the technology that will have these effects to try and draw attention to these effects and how they reflect wider wider society. So I'm certainly not saying, yay, we're all going to live on Mars and and pay for our servants using Bitcoin uh, because, you know, I'm I'm curious about the servants and, like, you know, what what are they doing there? But... um, yeah, it's I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to produce maps rather than you know propaganda posters for or against, but it's it's a very difficult line to walk because sort of I get a lot of hate on social media. <laughs> so, you must be doing something yeah, right. Sort of, yeah, one would hope, but so you know, I, if I just said, "Ah, oh, blockchain's terrible." Or yay to the moon! Then at least I would have some people who oh, constantly love love me, and some people who constantly hate me. But no, I, I just end up looking like a universal traitor. Yeah, you've, exactly. You, you've taken the least strategic position. Yes, very much so. Yeah, but but by tracking strategically an actual engagement with the history of ideas um, around this technology because this technology is where the history of ideas is currently doing some very interesting work. You've done so many works. Is there one that stands out as the most important for a broad public to know about? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I would be horrified if I was responsible for anything to a broad public. Like there's a couple. I love love Facecoin. It's sort of... It's, it's the one that lets you understand how this works without locking you into how it currently works because it's a little in-browser proof-of-work chain. So rather than the Bitcoin difficulty algorithm where you're looking for successively longer strings of, of the number zero, uh, it uses the same data, the same hash, but as a little pixel map that a face recognition algorithm is searching for faces in. And this came from, like, this is 2014, I think, and people were already worried about Bitcoin's energy consumption and the idea that it's waste. And we come back to the barren here and the idea that art is, is also essentially a waste. So I thought, well, what if we had a cryptocurrency that was, you know, running hundreds of nodes around the world, hashing thousands and thousands of times a second and, and making art, you know, wouldn't that be lovely in a deeply ironic way? And so, yeah, to do that, I had to really understand how the technology worked. And it means that the, the 
art is that what came out of it is embodied learning. It's not pedagogical in the sense that it says, and you have to think this about the subject, but it is, here is a subject, um, you can understand it better and, and still have an, you know, an open understanding of it. And I love, I love uh, um, secret artwork content because it just th- th- there is, there is absolutely something to public key cryptography as a socially and philosophically interesting thing. This dialectic of absolute secrecy and absolute identity in very 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 rarefied, uh, refined senses of of the idea of identity and and privacy or secrecy and sort of so much of philosophy and of of social concerns maps onto that and it's a, a technology that does that and that we all use thousands of times a day whenever you browse the internet whenever you pay for something whenever you stream something onto your smart TV, a lot of encryption is going on behind the scenes. And so sort of um, secret artwork is, again, me ripping off um, some old artists. So I like, in this particular case, the Art and Language Group, who are conceptualists working from the 60s to now. They're very grumpy Marxists, but can paint. So um, they've been painting for the last few decades rather than sticking text on walls and confusing people. and it, again, it sort of it performs distraction. It's an artwork which says, look over there. Sort of the title promises you some secret content. And it's there as the cryptographic hash. I, I don't actually remember what the content is. It's in the printout, the spreadsheet somewhere. Um, so I'll ever get sued and I'll be able to say what it is. But I genuinely, day to day, do not remember what it was. And it's, it's like a, a painting they, they did in the 60s which said, the content of this painting is secret unknown to the artist. And doing this with um, sort of a cryptographic hash in, in the sense of the content and public key cryptography in, in the sense of the um, transactions that assemble it, just make it very much a game of hide and not seek, but sort of distract from the fact that you don't know. So the display render for it will tell you everything about the artwork tell you the token number, the contract address, the owner address, uh, the hash of the secret, the block it was minted in, the, the, the block it was like, you know, every, everything it possibly can except the thing it promises, which is the, which is, which is the content. And like this is a time in my life where I had not yet come to terms with things that I should have known but but didn't in terms of of personal experience and looking back on it it's like oh yeah my art was trying to tell me something oh wow god that's obvious that's a bit on the nose if you if you put that if you put that in your tv show they'd be going the writers are really lazy so like i i love it sort of both personally and and socially as you know again a way in a, a sort of a gate without a keeper into this, this memeplex, to use the old, the old term, which is still useful, even if it's cringe, sorry, kids. So that's Secret Artwork, uh, 2018 on Ethereum, uh, page 293 in the book, if anyone wants to, yes. to take a look. Yes. 
So that's the most, maybe the most important for the broad public. Is there's one? Is there one that's uh, most important for the true fans? Um, oh, a deep cut. Oh, wow. I'm trying to think. I'm flipping through the book. It's hard to remember, isn't it? It, it is. I, I've, I've spent the last three decades staring at the screen, paging large amounts of code into my brain each day. And um, it really, really, really has fried my memory. <laughs> it, took it must have been very painful to assemble this book. Um, no, it's really nice, actually. Oh, really? I, I dug through lots. Yeah, no, I dug through lots of old hard disks and found found stuff that hadn't been published before or had been truncated. There's a much longer version of Bad Shive in here, which means that even less happens. And the interview with Maya took place over about four days. Uh, in the course of uh, December twenty-two, it's a fantastic interview uh, for anyone who has it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, May, yeah. May did an amazing job at the start of it. I was really worried that everything wouldn't hang together conceptually because I hadn't talked about the whole thing before. But Mayo is just ideal in terms of knowing the the philosophy and the art and the tech and stuff. And um, yeah, sort of. So there's about. It's got to be eight hours of interview, and it got edited down, edited down to that. So I've I've been talking to try and distract people, and and it hasn't worked no, amazingly well. So the ones, oh, that's right. Then. So the the the, the ones that uh, probably more, more people don't know about, but I, I would love to, are um, art coin, art coins coloured, which um, was a um, another. Another uh, oh god, what's the chain? Another Doge Party, another Doge Party project, and that was a very early um, attempt to sort of make ownable, conceptual art in a way that lampshaded the problems with owning things on chain. Do you want to, do you want to describe is, that one a little bit? Um, yeah, I'm trying to find it. Uh, it's two eighty nine. It's Twenty nine. Thank you. I should know the locations in my own book. No, no, no. Um, yes. So, so like it's it's a series of descriptions of. I, I imagined if I was like an art investment fund and I was trying to produce bundles of different kinds of artworks. What kinds would they be? Mm. And there's a few um, NFT unfortunate for twentieth century art or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and there's there, there's some unfortunate turns of phrase in there because of it, but you have sort of art coin blue, a perfect investment vehicle and symbolic resolution of the contradictions and aporias of management and capital made of the finest materials and the basest aesthetics. So like you can, if, if, if you are familiar with contemporary art, there are various artists you can think of who, who would comfortably or uncomfortably fit in there. But this isn't any actual art um, like that being covered. It's just that concept. So it's the gap, which the work is always is always about the gap. And then um, also on Doge Party, and I must check to see whether it's still running again because most people did resurrect it. Is Doge Code, which was my um, parody of, of Ethereum's promise of running programs on the blockchain. Um, it encodes a, a small real programming language called Brainfuck, which I think I refer to as BF. I know it's referred to as Brainfuck in the book. And it sort of sends a sequence of Doge Party tokens, of, uh, not of fungible tokens in, in modern parlance, to a Doge Party address. And then there's an application you can do which will walk through 
that stream of tokens and run the resulting program. And this is absolutely the worst possible way you could come up with of running code on a, a non-Ethereum blockchain. Um, I want to do something with the Lambda calculus on the Ethereum blockchain, but like this is a really terrible way of doing this, uh, which makes it fun. So um, the example in the book, 262, is a Sierpinski triangle, a, a fractal self-repeating triangle, uh, printed out on a, on a command line as asterisks by running some brainfuck code uh, encoded using Doge code tokens. And there's just so much that is silly and fun in there. And again, that sort of opens up what people are doing with trying to run code and represent assets on the blockchain. And, and sort of it's one of those ones where um, when, I, when I started doing the stuff, I got blank looks of incomprehension from everyone about all of it. And one of the nice things of the last few years has been people saying, oh, I really like you know, is art or um, shelling flags or something. With with Do with uh, Doge code, it's still, oh, well, that's nice. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay, cool. So I'm, I'm waiting for them that. And then just finally... Um, I, I love I love collaborations. I love seeing what other artists are doing. Um, I worked very much for Marguerite de Corsell, coin artist on Twitter, on her crypto puzzle trail games in 2014, 15, and a few times since then. And her painting, uh, The Legend of Satoshi Nakamoto or Torched Hearts, but I can never remember exactly how to type that. Sorry, Marguerite. So, um, sort of the, the work that we did on that, I think we were both not in the happiest places in our lives at that moment because I was having immigration problem and Marguerite had her own stuff going on, I think. And so this is something that we did, to my memory, basically before Christmas 2014, but I could be completely wrong. Um sort of Marguerite said, okay, I need this. I said, how about this? Yay, we did it. Marguerite drew all of those little flames around the edge by hand. Sorry, Marguerite. I, I gave her a printout that basically said, tall, blue, left, yellow, short, green center. And she transcribed those perfectly. And it just became such a thing. We wanted to make something a little bit harder because people had cracked the last couple of puzzles basically as soon as they'd been released. And we thought this one might keep them busy for about two weeks. And so two years later, when there were tens of thousands of dollars tied up in the puzzle, I was getting really paranoid about keeping the, the key on my laptop. So I sort of burnt it to a disc and shoved it in the safety deposit box. But um, just, you know, the experience of having that collaboration and having it become kind of a cultural thing was, was so good. And people, you know, I, it's not necessarily about my work, but I would like people to look more at what Marguerite did because it was foundational in, I want to say, enculturating the blockchain, you know, of making some sort of um, chain original culture uh, beyond either number go up or you know, this is my silver replacement. And I'm sort of, you know, I'm very proud to have helped her, her to do that. And um, yeah. 
Yeah, on the Torched Hearts project, I interviewed uh, Ben Cybourgeoisie, another collaborator. Oh, yeah, Ben's Ben's awesome. Yes, yes. And uh, Ben told me that uh, the puzzle scene in blockchain was kind of what attracted him to it. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it it, it drew so many people in and so many good people in. The community Margaret had, I, I screwed up the... The web server configuration for one of the puzzles, which meant that you could just claim the prize. And someone claimed the prize, sent it back to Marguerite and said, you might want to fix this. And so we did, and then people actually did the puzzle. And it was wonderful to have, you know, um, Marguerite's fans or community be a genuine community and to be genuinely engaged with with what she was doing and yeah ben showed me his lovely uh graphical interface he created to try and decode the flames and i felt so guilty having just given marguerite this sort of text literal text file i mean it couldn't have been more retro if you'd printed it out and up that old perforated green and white printer paper from old 70s movies um but yeah no, she did an amazing job and, and yeah sort of the, the fact that it drew people's attention and, and you know people were not trying as far as i know people were not trying to brute force it so you know that they're actually engaging with it on its own terms but again but my sort of i think as i say in the book my knowledge of puzzles goes back to things like this this late 70s puzzle book called masquerade uh, which had people digging up all of england looking for a, for a golden hair sculpture and, and um, a book on codes and secret writing that i got from my parents as a small child so you know there's there's always I'm, I'm not really someone who you know got on the plane to california saw a computer for the first time and said hey i can make art with this even if everyone says i can't it's sort of very much, yeah, we should be making more art with this. Um, I to do that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Dogecode a little bit more. Um, yes, yes. This 2014 project, I think, is really interesting. This is the uh, the one where you encode programs in this minimalist language called BrainFuck that has yes. only eight, yes. uh, I guess you'd call them functions, eight operators. I think it's six, doesn't it? I think it's six, doesn't it? It's, a little, it's sort of a little memory cell virtual machine. Because uh, it's based on the most minimal um, language you can use. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, no, that's not the code. Blah, 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 blah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, there's seven in the basic one. And But you don't actually... You don't actually need all of those because you don't have to output it. So you can get away with six, mm. yes, if, if you know what you're reading from memory. But having uh, what I call put B here or dot is, is, is much easier. So you essentially associate a value of Dogecoin, like a quantity of, of fungibles, to each of these operators, functions in the language? Uh, no, each, no, each operator is its own non-fungible token. So in ERC in twenty terms, you're looking at seven different um, seven different ERC twenty tokens, and yeah, you you send a stream of them in the correct sequence to an address, and then that stream is is read that sort of event stream, 
is read back from the um, from 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 the from, from the history. I didn't realize that Doge Party yeah. had this affordance for for tokens like that. But I suppose my soul was there, so it does. It, yeah, yeah. Tokens. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's so Doge Party was a fork of Counterparty XCP, which was the big Bitcoin of of, of the era. And Counterparty worked and works on top of Bitcoin using initially encoded um, addresses and then later um, TX out, not TX out, um, op, was it, is it op data or something? The, the bytecode that allows you to just have some data attached. Mm-hmm. And if you pass uh, sort of Counterparty's activity, you get this record of the creation and, and transfer of, of tokens. And this is this is and was great. Uh, Bitcoin is a bit more expensive and slower. Doge, Dogecoin, so some people ported it to Dogecoin and using the same foresight, which led me to turn down Bitcoin's drawings. I thought, hey, this is clearly better technically. People will prefer this, so I will do this. And then um, it went away within a year. So I died, remade things using Counterparty, uh, which means I now have the problem of having two different sets of tokens with Doge Party working again. And I don't want to end up being sued by someone who buys one and not the other and feels entitled to control my, my artistic production. So. so you would send, uh, like, for example, uh, for the uh, INCB, the increment byte at pointer, um, token you could send multiple of those tokens to this particular address and your essentially indexing software would read that as um as as having programmed a sequence of that character a sequence of that one one tension in this to me is just learning about brain fuck as a language it feels (laughs) more like a vm than oh very much so yes but vms i mean remember that the, the 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 sort of the m in virtual machine does stand for machine. And so, yeah, it's sort of programming languages at this level of simplicity are um, a configuration of programming machinery. That you sort of something this close to a, a virtual machine, sure, but a machine is sort of controlling the operations of that machine on a one-on-one basis. Each opcode controls one operation, whereas with a modern um, microprocessor, there, you know, one, one code you send to it can do all sorts of things, or several codes could configure just, just one thing. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is very nice for how close to the machine it gets. Um, it's nice because the name's a bit rude, and that fact, immediately puts people on, on the defensive if they're trying to be terribly respectable. And um, yeah, it's just such a misuse of the technology. But it's not a misuse of the technology that breaks it. And, and this, for me, is kind of different from uh, many net art strategies where there's this sort of soothing, reassuring, breaking of the technology um, so that you can return to your your humanist assumptions without having to worry Mm. about the machine eating everything. But that's 
that's a very old historical score, so I don't think I'll go there. But yeah, it's it's you're you're yeah you're right. It is like a processor, but sort of you know at that level of of simplicity or abstraction, yeah, you are sort of telling the processor, which is the machine, to do things in what looks like a language, but it's just a series of bits. And, and sort of serializing that over token transfers. Um, yes where the number of tokens transferred are the number of times to call that opcode in sequence. Yes, absolutely. It's yes, very cool. Yeah. It's very, very uh, cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, It's a slight misuse of technology because obviously you're relying on the history being available, but I, I, I'm relaxed about that and I, I keep keep thinking, shall I do an ERC-998 version of this on Ethereum? No, it's... Sort of, it doesn't have the same effect. I, I do want to. Sorry, go. No, sorry. What do you want to do? Yeah, I'm curious. I was going to say, yeah, I do want to do a sort of a Lisp using um, ERC nine nine eight or possibly six. I can't remember the new composition one because again, it's the worst possible way of encoding something. But I haven't quite got around to that yet. Um, is it not in the same way? Uh... Uh, abuse, misuse, reinterpretation of the chain in the same way Counterparty was? To a degree, yes, yeah. Um, it's it's less competent um, layering of it because, you know, deliberately, I mean, the, the information that you need to recreate the Counterparty system state is contained within the available trans I mean, I suppose it's similar. Yeah, I guess. Sorry, as, as you can tell, I hadn't thought about it for a while. So, but yes, yeah, okay, I'll take that one. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, but I, 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 it's interesting to me because since then, at least in the modern, or I call it modern, the recent era, yes. uh, there's been yes. several, you know, ordinals, inscriptions, operates yes. by a similar yeah. mechanism. Uh, also yes, on Ethereum, yes. there is ETH scriptions. The, I had... Uh, uh, middle March on the show uh, a couple months ago, and uh, Ethscriptions is in a lot of ways the same thing. And he's actually made uh, what he's calling dumb contracts on top of <laughs> his uh, essentially. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's a phrase for this kind of call data hacking, essentially. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, that the problem. So that's a problem with anything that presupposes the blockchain of storage is it's wrong. The blockchain isn't storage, it's a it's a transmission system. Um, as Tosh says, I think in the white paper, and if not in one of his earliest comments, as soon as you have spent a TX out, you can discard it. You know, you all you need is a valid set of live TX outs. And you know, if you are relying on keeping spent or unspendable TX outs to recreate your blockchain, or if you're assuming that part of the Ethereum Merkle tree uh, for a contract will not be you know, disposed of because it's not economically interesting for, for someone to keep it, then you're making the wrong bets. And so um, I, I am wary of people who unironically discover that um, events or transactions or exceptions or whatever are a cheap way of storing information on the blockchain because in the long term, the economic value of storing a blockchain to a person cannot exceed the 
sorry, cannot be uh, less than the value that they think they will be able to realize from it. So if you have a million dollar asset, then it's well worth your time to spend a thousand bucks to store that blockchain. Um, if you have a one Satoshi asset, then spending a dollar on storing that blockchain probably isn't economically rational for you. You notice I slipped economically back in there. Well, if it's if it's your last token you receive from your from your dead dog, or if it's your your medical your doctor's certificate or whatever, obviously the you know, value to try and calculate its monetary value is a category error. But yeah, in the general case, everyone else is not going to keep your apes safe for you for free because there really is nothing in it for them. Um, yeah, playing around with this rock is great. I, I love ordinals. I haven't done anything with them. Um, I think I said in the the interview that's just been published that they they very much scratch my numerical mysticism itch. Mm. Um, I, I I love people who who make numbers mysterious as a critical move, and the sort of the mysticism in ordinals of sort of reading. Um, significance back into something that in itself is absolutely not significant. There is no significance within the Bitcoin system to uh, which transaction an ordinal, uh, a Satoshi was was minted in, uh, was mined in the other, sorry. And so to read this information back in is, is, you know, again, a recovery of surplus value from the technology it's a critical move. It's it's fun, and I, I do like it. Yes, and it's also kind of a artistic choice in the development of that layer that's not obligatory. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Because the site, the counterparty has been around for for years now, and if you want a Bitcoin blockchain based slash Bitcoin payable token, then you, you can do that with counterparty, but um, sort of taking the old coloured coins uh, proposal, which was, I think, an attempt to do a name coin with um, with just base Bitcoin, and sort of adding sort of some number theory or some number mysticism to it is just such a fun move. It's so good. I, I mean that as high praise, not not dismissively. It's just such a solid. And, and delightfully surprising move. Of course, you're right about the pruning of history <clears throat> when it's not worth uh, preserving. But I guess in a way, one way to read what you're saying is uh, the art better just be worth it. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. I was having, I was having a, I was having one of, one of the sort of, every so often I end up in the crosshairs of someone who is destroying the planet by working with cloud computing destroying social freedom by working for a large corporation and destroying computing by that that company being in in um, you know in information technology and, and they, they just seize on blockchain as something that they can say oh this is terrible oh I'm a good person for not liking this and the person who did this this time was high up in cloud machine learning at Microsoft which I'm, I'm sorry, that's at least three things that you should not have to admit to doing. <laughs> it's like, 
I, I, you know, I call Microsoft the Redmond IQ shredder. It's such a horrifically unproductive company that has had such a deleterious effect on uh, public perception and, and freedom to use software. But anyway, I, I, I get out of my pram here. I shall get back in. So um, with... It, it, but so hold on. So it's interesting yeah. about what you say about, you know, we're talking about this, your work in BrainFuck on yes. Doge Party, Dogecoin, yes. and inscriptions, inscriptions, ordinals, yes. et cetera. But it also feels very resonant with um, a lot of the tendencies in both data availability, eigenlayer, et cetera. Yes, yes. And L2s for the same score, uh, writing call data to L1 is the mechanism for yes. optimistic rollups. Yeah. And ZK technology also, where regardless of the specifics of the implementations which are being worked out, a lot of the yes, work yes. is being pushed off chain and yes. you're just writing some provable shadow of the work yes. to the chain. It seems yeah. to me that all of this is in dialogue. Oh, absolutely. And all, all, you, all you need, and I think Ethereum 2 is definitely heading this way, all you need are a succession of Merkle routes. And you can cram <clears throat> the world's data into that as long as you can hash it in, in time. And this is one of the things that we went through. through I mean, you mentioned Ben, um, who is awesome. Uh, Marguerite's Games Company Blockade. I worked with her and Ben there, and we were looking at different layer twos. So I've, I've, you know, I've had to sit down and work out the security characteristics of layer twos. And that the, the interesting thing about Nakamoto consensus, as as we should call it, is that it is an economic solution to a computer science problem. It's not in itself merely a new algorithm. It's not a faster bubble sort. It's not a better image compression mechanism. If you showed a cryptographer uh, the proposal in 2009, whenever, they would have said, why is he using this scheme? This is so outdated. But that's not the point. The point was this outdated, well-known, well-relied-on scheme was being used in an economic game that allowed something to be done that could not be done before, which is to have uh, parties that mutually distrust each other work together to establish the, the state of, of a set of data. And this means that from the start, we're looking at economics, looking at game theoretic economics and whenever you hear the word cheap uh, another word for cheap is mispriced and mispricing of something in an open market can be exploited um, when i was a kid um, the real george soros not the the imaginary bugbear of, of right-wing extremist cheese dreams he, he, he broke the pound the british pound um every every, every sort of person in England lost 50 pounds, not of weight, but of money, to George Soros, because he recognized an exploit to be had in the international currency market and, and went for it. And, and, you know, that is how the markets are meant to work. But it does also mean if anyone is promising you cheap storage, what they're actually saying is, I have mispriced this, and someone else will be able to make either more money by um, exploiting that or, or more money by actually pricing things properly and being more robust. So, yeah, la layer 
you don't, can I say this? You probably don't want a layer two. There are many lovely ones, and I know people who work on them. And like you, you, you trade off security and longevity guarantees for lower transaction prices. I, I think you, you know, there should be more ephemeral off-chain games, which is more like lightning. But um, people can very easily conceive of, of blockchains at this point. So structuring those games as a blockchain is a way of making it, you know, tractable to people, making it so people can get their heads around it. And using the Ethereum virtual machine um, gets you instant buy-in. I worked at the lovely Dapper Labs in Vancouver for a little while. I worked, as is public knowledge, on their cadence programming language for their Flow blockchain, and that was just such a good programming language. It's like when I originally looked at Ethereum, I thought, oh, yeah, this is going to need functional programming. Like, this is the only way this will be secure enough. And then they produced something that looked like Python and then something that looked like Go. I was like, yeah, this isn't quite what I had in mind, but it seems to work okay. But Solidity just fundamentally takes a different appropriate model for, for smart contracts and accounts and, and it's just such a joy to write in and sort of it is fine isn't it it is it is and yet people are like what do you mean it isn't solidity i mean yeah it isn't solidity this is a good thing <laughs> like imagine you know imagine a programming language where sort of a few years ago you won't accidentally access main memory by declaring a local variable so yeah pe- people i don't know pe- people get set in their ways and software developers are, are, are no different but yeah do 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 be careful with um sort of promises of reduced costs without a, a very good story of how that's going to make the people doing it more money in the long term You've done several pieces over the years where the art is flipping a Boolean value, yes. like hot and cold. This contract is art, uh, both from 2014. Uh, this token is art. Yes. Um, you also have art is, which does something similar, but with, I guess, selecting within an enum, more yes, or less. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah, so uh, it's, it's, I describe it as a constrained grammar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So can you tell me about the, I don't know, joys, hardships of working as simple as possible and letting the concept do the work with a primitive of the medium? So I I learned to program in the 1980s on home computers that had, like my first one had 32 kilobytes of RAM, and that was a lot of memory at the time. Um, your, Your laptop or certainly your desktop workstation may now have 32 gigabytes of memory. So that's, what, a million times the memory? I can't do math, I'm an art student. Um, so, you know, a million times the memory I was working with, I was working in BASIC, which is a very basic language, and so and, and with little 8-bit microprocessors. So you just had to learn how the machine worked. And then when I went and worked in the games industry, for a couple of years, again, you had to know how the machine worked and you had to be able to, you know, really change things around at the bit level to move things from one 
console platform to another, as it were. So I, I did have this knowledge of how to do things with the machine and how they, you know, how that cascades up to writing something in in Solidity or JavaScript or or whatever. And I think the the original um, the original description of the, the sum total power of the Ethereum virtual machine was that it, it was about as strong as a turn of the millennium Nokia smartphone. You know, this very, very limited little processor that was meant to run the world, I mean, not really, but like, meant to run the world's um, computing. And it's like, oh yeah, that's going to be terribly resource constrained. And then when you factor in that you're paying for blockchain storage, you know, again, you, you you want to encode and process things in a very economically efficient ways, which means in very, you know, very, very tersely. Thank you. Yes, that's a wonderful word. I will adopt it and, and use it. And um, so I, I could immediately go back to my experience and look at how to map these things in. And, and the using a single bit came from... The, the blog post slash essay Art World Ethereum, which really was my attempt to map out a possible Ethereum art world slash art world use of Ethereum. And so it starts with a contract with zero bits of information. Then it goes on to a contract with one bit of information and it ends up with, with um, a catalogue raison for an artist, I think an art market. If not, I did an art market in the next post. Um, and so, it, you know, in that article, I was, and in the series of works that followed, I was just working from the simplest possible things up to more complex things. And so with this art, it's binary, it's sort of, is it art or is it not? With hot cold, it's swapping two different bits of information. Again, that's a, a reference to more of art and language artwork. And then with, um, with art is, I, I've, been very interested in trying to use uh, blockchain for sort of art criticism for art curation and that's something that's only really come in in the last couple of years and so this is a way of again using the wonders of economic rationality um, to get to get art theorists to put their money where their mouth is if you believe that your definition of of art is good, then it will have a measurable economic value. Um, I'm, I'm hiding my mouth behind my hand at this moment and giggling in in, in, in seriousness terms. And so you can spend a tiny amount of ether to set your definition of art, and it probably get changed by the next person. Or you can spend billions of dollars to, to set your definition of art, and that's unlikely to change ever. And um, this is precisely how art criticism doesn't work, how art theory doesn't work. But it sort of collides the failings of market rationality with the failings of ivory tower theory. Um, I know some very street level theorists, and I would like to be very clear that I am very, very pro theory and if i do anything i consider myself to do theory in in the unfashionable sense but um yeah this, this with um with this art i'm sorry with art is it's very much that that collision of overconfident totalizing views of society 
there's a great line in the description of one of these pieces. I can't, I can't find it in the book right now, but where you say, if I delegate my yes. critical acclaim to your work and you, I must, I must, <laughs> I can't, how could I possibly criticize yes. you for spending that on somebody else's work uh, as your critical yes. vision? If, if I've invested in your vision, then surely I'm, I'm by proxy yes. invested in what you Yeah, there's, there's, because there's, um, this this kind of thing is, is a is a field or an area or you know a tangled mass. It's not a series of points on a grid where you can stand and say, "Here's where I am in how I think of art," and this means that the people stood closest to me will obviously share you know ninety eight percent of my opinion of art. It's much vaguer than that. It's much less predictable than that. And there's there's nothing wrong with that because uh, you know that's how human beings work. But the idea that you can make these magisterial pronouncements on what art is or what or what is art, and then run away, never sat right with me. And again, the idea that you can price anything, and if you don't pay the price, you don't really want it, is something that anyone who's ever you know, lost a pet or a relative can instantly refute. So, uh, sorry, I usually say that to, to young audiences, so uh, not too young. Anyway, so, um, yeah, it's, it's a nice, you know, the work's usually a nice collisions. Maybe, maybe could, <laughs> could you read, could you read the, uh, the last paragraph on page 281? Uh, so I found it, it's from this the Critical Coins Project. Yeah, is is this to capture my voice so you can get me get an AI of me code ca cold calling people and asking them for their keys? Mother's maiden. Ah, uh, so so <laughs> your SIN, please. Ah, <laughs> uh, so sorry, you said the last paragraph. Two eighty one. Two eighty one. The last paragraph. So this is the Critical so Coins Project from two thousand fifteen on Counterparty and Doge Party. So the one that starts we can, or the one that starts presumably. Presumably. Presumably, art is the product of aesthetic competence. And if I, as an art historian or critic, approve of your exercise of this competence, I cannot fault you if your exercise of that competence in the evaluation of someone else's art or critical competences in turn leads you to transfer the tokens of my critical approval to a third party. Uh, if I ever say third party, I, I'm trolling Modulo, the, the white paper. So transferable tokens make sense, and in fact the history of their transferals adds value. It provides a historical record of regard, influence, and the reach of my original opinion. Yeah, there's, there's a lot in there, sort of soul-bound tokens are obviously a fantastically bad idea, but, and there's sort of, you know, social network tokens and surveillance and the, the, the limits of representing continuous social values as, as discrete tokens of any kind there. The, 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 the sort of one of the classics and certainly one of the big influences on Bad Shy is uh, Cory Doctorow's novel Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, which is set in a post-scarcity society where the, the currency, where the coin of the realm is reputation. Uh, reputation measured as, as a quantity of, of something called a wafi. And the number of people who have missed that this is satirical and tried to make it and tried to make it with, with uh, blockchain is, is non-zero. So 
Sci-fi has a way of doing that. It, yeah, someone, someone came up to me once at a hack meet and said, hey, I've worked out how to make the Are We, yeah, uh, the, the Are We There Yet system from Bad Shy. And I was like, could, could you not? It's, it's a dystopian satire of, of social credit schemes and, and refer. No, please, please don't do that. Like You're lovely, but no. So, yeah. There must be a name for this principle. Uh, uh, it's become a I'm, meme I'm at this sure point, there thanks is, to yes. Palantir. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Oh, goodness, yeah. Yeah, it's the, the you know, uh, oh, it's the torch nexus, isn't it? You know, I, I did not intend for people to actually build the torch nexus. Is identity still an interesting subject to you, or have we beaten it to death? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No, identity is fascinating. Have, having sort of undergone a phase transition in my own identity in several ways over the last few years, um, not, not least going from being English, don't you know, to a, a good, honest Canadian. <laughs> sort of, yeah, sort of how we, how we think of identity, how we don't think of identity. It's legibility socially and to the state and the, the, the sort of rarefied concept of identity that we see in crypto and thence in, in, in blockchain is just endlessly fascinating to me. I want, I want to do some um, I want to do some one and one of ones of different identity matrices from mathematics because I can do the, the postscript identity matrix and that will really upset mathematicians because it's, um, it's a matrix with a column missing. For those of you who actually know this, which I hasten to add, does not include me. So yeah, you know the, the idea of um, what what is what is the so, I mean I mean sort of press, pressing delete on the previous sentence. The, the idea of cryptographic hashes is the idea of making a name for something in the computer science sense. A name being a unique identifier for something, and I was, I was sort of again, I was driving along the, the highway, the freeway the other day, and there's a bridge in town where the, the freedom people wave the Canadian flag to look like they're lost and hang banners making various outrageous accusations about the issue of the day. And their, their first one was, you know, you won't miss your freedom until it's gone, with which I agree. The next one was, ah, masks which I definitely don't agree with as someone with asthma. Next one was digital identity. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's not great on balance, is it? And the last one was CBDC. And I thought, oh, central bank digital currencies have, yeah, have, have, have reached the QAnon adult section of the population. This is going to be very awkward. I'm going to find myself marching alongside some very strange people in the next few years. And, and this, you know, this is all uh, the concept of identity of who you are, of who you are seen to be, of your name, of of what your name means, good or bad, uh, and of what people should or can know of you. Historically, a lot of what we would now refer to as identity politics was precisely the refusal of an identity. Like if you try to nail someone down to a name which is obviously negative, then of course they're going to refuse that name. And the idea of sort of claiming an identity positively is, a, is to my understanding, a relatively 
recent thing. And, and then sort of with crypto, this assumption that the state and society needs to know as little about you as possible, which I personally agree with. Uh, and, you know, you can do everything through the proxy of a cryptographic address, a cryptographic name, is absolutely fascinating in terms of this idea of, of, of adoption or disavowal of identities, of, of names, because you can, at the same time, be absolutely known as the controller of this cryptographic address, but absolutely unknown as any other feature of your existence. And that sort of opens that up both both historically and practically. And yeah, sort of, I think the first one for this was shelling flags. It's like the idea that, you know, again, that people can make flags for their micro identity and, you know, the most popular ones will bubble to the top. Again, it's flag for organizations by art and language. Um, it's a Google Doc, which I love, which was a list of all 400 genders known to Tumblr in 2013. And so this, this, this question of how, you know, how, how and what do we know ourselves as, particularly under capitalism, is, is something that the internet accelerates, like you absolutely, as the old CCRU argued, see an accelerating development of, of microcultures on, on and thanks to the internet. So, yeah, sort of introducing money into that has hardly decelerated it. It's interesting that there's two kinds of identity here. One is a position, coordinate position within a defined matrix within which one may be comfortable or uncomfortable. And there's also unique identifier, which is in a way the exact That's, opposite thing. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting because like if you have either the Marxist or more general idea of a class, like a class is a set of individuals. They don't all have to be the same. They just have to have you know, one thing in common to place them into a class. Whereas sort of I think people view social identity groups far more homogeneously, largely due to how the human brain works. But um, yeah. It, it is frustrating that the left doesn't take seriously the means of uh, proof of work production or, or, you know, blockchain. Oh, goodness. That's, yeah, I mean, le left technophobia um, is historically illiterate. I, I know some very nice sort of non-technophobe leftists, and there is absolutely that that tradition and its remnants um but yeah that sort of if if um if bitcoin does represent the successful technological imposition um enforcing creation of a, a fascist or at least right-wing social order through you know through um, its economics through its ideas Either we can do the same on the left, and why aren't we? Or there is, you know, this is an urgent subject of understanding and practical critique rather than simply pointing at it and going blockchain bad. It's like the, the competent responses to it are very few and far between, and I find that endlessly frustrating. I've written some extremely straight-faced uh, and serious articles over the years trying to recommend 
you know, critical engagement, an engagement with this technology to my fellow lefts, um, like the the, the Dorks um, essay, which yes is pronounced Dorks, is absolutely, you know, that's absolutely seriously my answer to what problems within leftist political economy could blockchain solve were we to go to um, a syndicalist or anarcho-communist or liberal communist structure of co-ops and workers' councils. But, yeah, people don't seem to want to hear that. So here we are. It is uh, something like a backhanded, not compliment exactly, testament, a backhanded testament to the soft power of whatever left exists in practice, that a complete ignorance of uh, technological power uh, it nevertheless doesn't doesn't destroy the the meme it's it's tricky though because it's um my, my personal experience is that over the last few years we've all had a rather rough time there was the there was the financial crisis there's covid um there's trump getting elected or trump not getting elected again depending on your politics you know we, we there's been a lot going on and uh, climate tra- climate change <laughs> like is summary. <laughs> cli- cli- you know cl- cl- climate change is accelerating and there's nothing we can individually do about it and you know all of these things and so whoever you are wherever you're coming from the world is now an unfamiliar and scary place and when you have as a but this unfamiliarity and scariness is driven by your own actions. It is driven by your own consumption, by your own engagement or non-engagement with politics. It's, you know, we're all stood there, you know, turning a ratchet that only goes in the direction of no things are worse, no matter what we do. And people are not used to being the bad guys and societies are not used to this level of contradiction, the way that people and societies resolve the tension of this to continue to be able to function is by finding scapegoats in in the anthropological sense. You know, you find a group or individual who all of society's ills and wrongs can be blamed on. They can be driven out of society and then society will be happy until they have to do it again. And yeah, that's sort of I, I was joking with the person I had a disagreement with the other day that they would be a cloud computing executive. When they were, I was like, this is the third time this has happened. <laughs> like, you know, the people who are most destroying the planet, the economy and society with technology are the people who with absolute shining confidence know that they are good and virtuous for telling artists that use blockchains that they are they are human garbage so yeah that's sort of negative side and, and like you know you can't use technology for bad things I, my favorite quote on this is is professor farnsworth from futurama saying technology is neutral like the death ray it's like yeah, yeah no that's not a neutral technology professor it, it, it kills okay no yeah sure so like yeah i i I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a fatalist. I'd like to come back to it. Yes, I think we can make a better world. I think we must make a better world. I think, given where we are, we have to use technology to do that. Um, and the gap between that and 
people who are still getting upset by Mark Fisher's Vampire Castle essay being right in the second half is, is I don't know how we cross that gap. Like, I see more young people becoming sort of ultra-weird Catholic mm. firearms transhumanists than I do becoming any kind of um, actually forward-looking leftist. Uh, I'm hoping this is just my circles online and it says something terrible about me. But, um, yeah. Do you listen to the radio? Um, with apologies to the cause, no, no. When I get into my car, I, I finally figured. <laughs> I, I find. I find. Well, I finally figured out how to disable the Sirius XM module, and so I occasionally get local rock radio for no reason and just turn it off. I, I listen to some podcasts. I started listening to Tax Shepherd being a transphobic fuckwit the other day and turned that off. But yeah, I listen. I, I sort of used to listen to Let's Talk. Bitcoin religiously when that was still going, and I, I do listen to, to podcasts. Do you know yeah. uh, Andreas uh, Antonopoulos? Uh, not personally, but he is awesome, yes. Uh, he, he sort of uh, disappeared into Patreon, from what I can understand. I, I miss him. That that, make, that makes sense, yeah. Okay, I'll have to look for his Patreon, because it's really good. Yeah, I've got his, I've got his books. Um, I always enjoy listening to him talking about Bitcoin, and I find his... Uh, reasoned sort of not confidence but the, the reason seriousness with which he takes this technology to be to be very good to be you know he's he's an excellent voice for the technology without being a number go up person if that makes sense yeah, he, he taught me uh blockchain he taught me bitcoin Oh, wow. Oh, brilliant. Uh, not personally, but uh, via YouTube, <laughs> via the magic of YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, I've watched a couple of his YouTube ones. I've got the books of his talks, which are wonderful, and I've got his Mastering X, Y, and C mm-hmm. books. Um, the Bitcoin one is so good, and uh, I must work through the Lightning one. Yeah, I haven't read God, that it took me forever. It took me forever to understand Lightning, because I was looking at I was modeling it as exchange back and forth between two parties. And as soon as I introduced a third party, not a trusted third party, someone on the outside, I was like, oh, that's how it works. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, his stuff's good. Yes, yeah. And there's the Ethereum one, which he wrote with Gavin. And I'm sure there's another one coming out. Sorry, I I cannot remember what it is. Actually, I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Yes. Do you draw a stark line between art and entertainment? Should art be serious and refined or... Uh, um, do you not see a, a blurry boundary between them? I, I I think that art and literature are something that is genuinely only identified after the fact. I know that's a very snobby, high modernist take on it, but like all of the literary writing that's produced at the moment, test, test, all test. of the very serious contemporary art that's produced at the moment, is no more likely to be part of the canon than a pair of sneakers or um, someone's Tumblr role-playing blog. Like, you, you can try and uh, map, your, you, you can try and turn um, a model of consumption into a model of production, but you have to do it ahead of time. You can't go, hey, what's good now? I will make stuff that's good now, and it will be good in the future. Now that, that the most popular artists and writers of the Victorian era 
are not remembered today. Uh, instead, we get the people who wrote for newspapers and the people who were turned away from exhibitions. Like, you know, those people we regard as representing that era. I mean, the collapse of art sales into luxury good sales is, well, yeah, art is a luxury good. Um, the content of art is, is separate from the financial status of art. Um, Charles Harrison, the, the late English art critic who worked with art and language, talked very much about sort of the difference between um, the arts uh, the, the sort of the art public that looks at your work and the art public that buys your work, and they, they don't have to be the same. And so that that opens up art quite a bit. Um, but yeah, do you art think is the market practice is good. A art practice also? Do you appreciate anybody who's good at that performance art that captures the market attention? So that that's a difficult one because you're absolutely right that that's a thing. I haven't necessarily thought about people. In, in, in those those terms, but like, you know, someone, I mean, the, the obvious one would be people. I mean, I was, I was deeply relaxed about someone getting 70 million for their for their art. I was less relaxed about some of the imagery, I must make it very clear. But no, in terms, you know, yeah, I, I'm very, very happy if someone can catch the attention of, um, you know, a particular market segment. It would have, like, it's tricky because I, I would want it to be done reflexively. But, of course, people can tell if you're mm-hmm. not entirely serious. And the whole point of art to people is they want something entirely serious. You almost have to go the other way. Like, um, I don't know if you've seen any of these recent Marvel movies, but the Thor character, at least, is yes. exemplary of this thing that maybe is has some lineage shared with something like a, Judd Apatow movie from 10 or 15 years prior right. where the gag is almost that yes it's a billion dollar movie yes we spent 500 yes. million dollars marketing it and yes, yes it comes off like improv in the scene yeah 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 I mean if we're talking about acting sort of naturalism in in television and movie acting is absolutely fascinating sort of you get actors who always men but you get actors who look like these disheveled messes. And you're just like, you know, did they just walk off of the street and do this? Or you get actors who look like they are, yeah, as you say, improvising something. And no, it's it's the height of their craft to hide the preparation, to, you know, sell you this fantasy of of a you know of, of a naturalness Filmed on to green their screen. to their take on the role. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're going to see a lot less. <laughs> we're going to see a lot less green screen uh, if the um, if the current strike goes the right way. The, the reason everything is done with green screen, uh, green tape, and CGI is because um, CGI workers are not unionized, mm. so you can very very cheaply superimpose a a Marvel Universe gun over the green squeaky toy that Samuel L. Jackson holding as he sits in front of a green screen you just send it to vancouver pay someone a little bit of cash for the day and they do it if you have to actually have a firearms handler the continuity person and everything else that you need to have an actual physical prop they're going to get residuals so it you know it's it's another good example of the effect of economics 
on use of technology. And I think we will see a lot more craft, both in terms of not just using CGI and of using CGI where it's required to achieve an effect that couldn't be any other way as you know, as a result of a labour dispute. And that, that for me should be a, a learning moment for the left, but I'm not holding my breath. It's, it's, it's so abstract. It's if you're not willing to face the technology, it's difficult to, yeah, yeah, to perceive. Yeah. Same thing here in, in Montreal. Yes. The the Ubisoft is a huge developer here. Yeah. There's also many yes. um small CG uh, outfits that do things like Discovery Channel, yes. History Channel, Docs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I didn't yeah. realize they weren't unionized or weren't a part of the residuals yeah. formula. Yeah, I mean, Vancouver has um, Electronic Arts. If everyone remembers the EA Spouse letter, they, they are, I don't know how they are now, but they certainly were not the, the most human employer a few years ago, allegedly. And yeah, the, sort of Vancouver is Hollywood North. Like loads of shows are filmed there for the lower dollar rate, tax breaks. But yeah, there's also lots of effects and animation houses there because you can take advantage of the lower dollar rates and um, save money on, on the legal structure as well. So yay, technology, uh, te- 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 techonomics, to quote, who should not be named, I, the combination of technology and, and economics. Do you have any works uh, that you like that use licensing creatively or intellectual property oh, rights? Oh, 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 God, yes. So all of them. But um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a series I need to dig out of my old server and probably mint called CC Ironies from about 2008, but I'm probably wrong. And it's a series of what looks like very bad clip art. And, and I would like to be clear that it's meant to look like very bad clip art, each of which has a Creative Commons license, um, a, a free culture or, or you know proprietary sharing license for cultural works, applied to it that contradicts with its content and purpose. So there's, a, you know, there's one of those, you know, jagged sale now on labels, which has a non-commercial license on it. Uh, there's a Mad Libs, which has a no derivatives license on it, so you can't modify, and, and this kind of thing. And, and um, if you show them to a lawyer, the funny thing is that most of them are not original enough to have copyright in the first place, but we ignore that. So, um, yeah, I might I might drag those out, do some CC0 ones, because I was very happy when CC0 became a big interest for, for people. I think it was an essay on that in the book that was written before the CC0 craze, but I was busy editing the book when that happened, so I, I looked late to the party. So there's that, and then there's um, Certificate of Inauthenticity, which, again, goes back to conceptual art Certificates of Authenticity. It is a good-faith non-lawyer attempt to write a document that can handle things like chain forks, chain death, um, that kind of thing. And I was very reassured when uh, Primavera, Felipe and some other um, excellent legal thinkers did their, their model DAO law. And it looked at the language they used around choosing, you know, which chain is the chain in the case of a fork was similar to what I had written. So yeah, I was reassured by that. But yeah, that, that plays uh, with the desire for something to be absolutely ownable and there to be no doubt about it. You know, the, the 
sort of whenever someone came along and said, oh, you know, you can't actually own stuff with perfect certainty on the blockchain because I've just minted the Mona Lisa. It's like, yeah, well, well done. We were talking about this in 2014 at the latest. You're, you're late to the party. Come and catch up, please, because I get very sarcastic. And if only there was a way to I'm speculate on, uh, but, on late adopters of memes like this. <laughs> goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah. But basically, the, the desire to have guaranteed unique ownership uh, in a world of multiple forks of the same chain, uh, you know, alone before we get to anything else, is an impossible dream without other guarantors of authenticity. So rather than going for absolute authenticity, I went for absolute inauthenticity. So certificate of inauthenticity says if you print out, if you own the token, if you print out certificate, if you 3D print one of the models, and display that with its correct Creative Commons license. I personally guarantee I've had nothing to do with your production and or installation of the artwork. You know, that's that's a very simple reversal of and frustration and ironic fulfillment of people's desires. But what working through that was really useful for like, okay, but what if it's on another chain or what, you know, that kind of thing. And the, the problem I have now is that galleries always email me and say, hi, we'd like to show certificate of inauthenticity. And I'm like, yes, if you read it, it says that I've had nothing to do with you showing it. Are you trying to like legally entrap me and get me in trouble for breaking the terms? Of, and they they just look at me like, like, an adorable, smart, hardworking puppy that has just not been trained in this area of artistic sarcasm. And I'm like, okay, go on then. Uh, these, these works remind me of um, the coffee pot for masochists, this uh, Jacques Carrollman coffee pot that's on the cover. I, I first saw it on the design of Everyday Things, the Don right. Ryan book. Oh, yes, yeah. These kind of... Uh, yeah, I, I don't... I don't remember that one. I had to have a look at that. It's like yes, a coffee pot yeah. with a spout uh, facing the handle. Yes. Oh wow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I. 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 Yeah. I think I'd want to be in zero gravity before I go more one of those. Yes. What's your day to day like now? I. I wake up. I'm. I'm always very angry about that. <laughs> um. I. I have breakfast. I've. I'm. I'm. I'm sort of working as an artist full time which as anyone who works as an artist full-time knows uh, means I'm getting to do a lot less art because I have to do admin all the time. But yeah, I've got a studio. I've got some nice toys in there to make art with. Mm. Um, I've, I've got endless email chains with lovely people working very, very hard to put my, my art on walls with minimal input from me. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's this good. I, I go to the occasional political protest i go to a bank or something occasionally and, and, and try to explain to them that no actually something has been paid and bitcoin solves this so yeah it's um it's good yeah yeah you have three shows on right now i do i was very impressed i, I don't think i've had that before um there's the one in singapore which i think is it, which i think has just ended there's the one in switzerland which coming up to ending and the one in London which has got another couple of weeks and it was really lovely to be in there with that particular selection of artists because they're sort of you know it's like if, if you 
play music and got to play with the band that made you want to make music in the first place. It's that kind of experience. As long as it's not a don't meet your heroes kind of experience. Oh, definitely not. No, no. I, I, I have, I have a hard and fast don't work with geniuses rule. But no, no. I mean, Harold Cohen passed away a couple of years ago, but I, I did sort of, you know, meet him in person and be incredibly starstruck to him when when he was alive and when I was still in the UK. And he he was very he was very nice uh, to me. So um, yeah, no, I, I've been okay with that. So for the benefit of yeah. the uh, AI bots transcribing this call in the future, yes. uh, Jen Jen, Gazelia Art House is one of the shows. Exploring the Decentralized yes. Web, Art on the Blockchain is another. And the yes. final one is Notes from the Ether, Marina Bay yes. Sands. Uh, so people can yes. check those out. I'll put them in the show notes, of course. And they're your yep. pinned tweet as well if people want to check that out. They, yes, they are. Yes, yes. And ab above that, there's the profile, which is um, currently advertising the book that you mentioned. My, my publisher spent i think about two years of, of staring at the screen to make it so um please send them some money for the physical or ebook version it's, it's a lovely yes yeah, lovely artifact i, I they, had, they had to convince me on the cover because i was like are you sure it, it, it's overlapping and they're like yeah it'll be silver it's fine and it, yeah, it looks so good yeah yeah so true. um yeah yeah beautiful buy the book, please it's great yes yes uh, yeah we spent a long that, time is there a link we spent that? a long time trying to find the correct color of blue to be mm. blue screen of death blue. Um, it's Pantone Reflex Blue. And is, yeah. there, a, is there a quick um, link for that? If, people want to um, if you go to urbanomic.com slash proof hyphen of hyphen work, that will either take you there or to a 404 page, which will allow you to search for it. But yes, Ur Urbanomic. Sort of a, sort of a Rick Rickroll uh, for your work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm not trying to recruit people. Um, I just don't have a tiny U URL um, um, or anything available. Well, people can people can search yeah. it. I'm sure. Proof of work. Ria Myers. Thank you yes. so much for coming on the show and sharing so much and spending so much time with yeah, us. Yeah, thank you. It's been really good to talk, and thank you to everyone for listening. I know some of you popped in and out. Some of you've been here all the way through. I salute you all, and, and thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Ria. Thank you. All right, have a good evening. Bye-bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Web3 Galaxy Brain. To keep up with everything Web3, follow me on Twitter at Nicholas with four leading ends. You can find links to the topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. Podcast feed links are available at web3galaxybrain.com. Web3 Galaxy Brain airs live most Friday afternoons at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2200 UTC on Twitter Spaces. I look forward to seeing you there.